This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones coming to you this week from Utah. I'm the founder of the B Podcast Network and author of the book School X and How to Be a Transformative Principal. I'm also a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and the misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. For more information or to donate to our work, please visit centerforcyberethics.org. The Cybertraps podcast is a production of the Center for Cyberethics, a 501c3 independent nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyber ethics as a positive social force. Research, curricula development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. Hey there, Globetrotter. How are you, Jethro? <laughs> yeah, Globetrotter. Just down in Utah, that's not much of a globe, but that's cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, still, you got on the road a little bit. I'm looking forward to my trip to PPI in October, uh, actually get on a plane again it's kind of fun it, it is fun and uh i've been down here in utah doing some work for ed elements and connecting with a lot of districts and cool. um uh i think i found a potential guest for us uh they um this district in southern utah told me about this thing called edge room which is a statewide network that has been set up for educators so that an educator from any district can go to the site of any other district, log in through Eduroam and have all the firewalls and security go back through their own district to make sure that they um, 
that they can get on the internet easily all throughout the state and have their own policies and practices in place as well. Isn't that a cool idea? That's actually very cool. So sort of portable cybersecurity. Yeah. And and what I think is so cool about it is that when you're using your work laptop, like you have sensitive student information on there, and that won't be exposed to another district's um, network in case there is like some ransomware on that network or something like that. Um, what it means is that it it you'll have your own safety and protections there on your computer and you'll be able to um, keep yourself safe um, and according to your own policies. So nice. that sounds like a pretty cool idea. I thought that was a, a neat thing. So um, we'll hopefully be able to get him on the podcast to talk more about that. Yeah, I definitely like to explore that because it, it obviously touches on the, the cyber traps piece, but then also this idea of cybersecurity, obviously all of the insurance issues that we discuss in terms of mm -hmm. vulnerabilities and liabilities and so forth. So really cool idea. Yeah. Good thing we are such nerds and actually think that is cool. <laughs> <laughs> What are we doing today, Jethro? Well, um, we are recording this on the last day of Mental Health Awareness Month, which is the month of September. And uh, a report came out uh, just this morning, and we thought that it would be a great idea to talk about it. So the report uh, is regarding a young woman named Molly Russell, who was a 14-year-old girl uh, in London. And she committed suicide in November of 2017. And so the uh, five years later, almost, the senior coroner ruled that her death was a result of depression and, quote, the negative effects of online content. And uh, one, this is absolutely tragic and something that is 100% preventable. Um, because if, if, if it is the result of depression and the negative effects of online content, then we could have done something to save this girl's life. And that's part of why we do this podcast is to make people aware of things that are bad that truly negatively impact our youth. And we want to prevent that as much as we possibly can. Absolutely. I, I think that I was particularly struck by this report because it's one of the first, I think, that goes into such depth on the impact of these online platforms on a, sp on a specific child's life. And so, you know, the five-year wait is something we need to talk about um, just from the start, because that's a remarkably long period of time for the parents to wait for the social media companies to provide the data that the coroner was asking for in trying to assess the impact of what this young uh, online on her eventual death. And, you know, there's so many things that the social media companies need to do better, but being responsive in situations like this should be at the top of the list. Nobody should have to wait five years to get this kind of information and 
begin to resolve some of the issues that this case raises. Mm-hmm. And and the thing is, is that it, either um, either the social media companies are ignorant of the harm that they're causing, which is bad and not good at all. <laughs> to or, put it mildly. Yeah. Or they know the harm that they're causing and are dragging their feet so that people don't find out that this is going on and that they can keep their users addicted and stuck in these negative cycles. Um, those are two extremes. Uh, and I don't know which one's worse. I mean, I, I have an opinion on that, but they're both pretty <laughs> awful. Yeah, I, I, I think you and I share the same opinion with respect to that. And, you know, I think uh, just a little bit more background on what the coroner's inquest found might be useful for people. And, you know, I think this show is is directed, obviously, at the social media companies, but it's something that I think parents absolutely need to be aware of because, um, you know, Molly, uh, you know, what happened to Molly is not obviously going to happen to every child, but the harm that she experienced along the way is clearly something that could affect, you know, millions of children. Uh, just as an aside, there was a child safety report that came out in the United Kingdom uh, yesterday, I think, and it found that 45% of all children 8 to 17 had seen similar things to what this young woman saw. And so that's, you know, that's a tremendous exposure and it's, it, it raises all kinds of mental health issues. Now, specifically, what the coroner found when he was looking into the circumstances surrounding her death is that in just the last six months of her life, Molly saw more than 16,000 pieces of content on Instagram, of which 2,100 were related to suicide, self-harm, and depression. And on top of that, filed a digital pin board on Pinterest with 469 images related to similar or parallel subjects. And the key here is that whether she was out there seeking out this content as as a byproduct of depression or what have you, that's one piece of it. But the real driver here is the fact that the algorithms that these social media companies use to suggest new content to viewers to keep them engaged were directly feeding her material that was sad or depressive related. And then Pinterest sent her an email that said, here are 10 depression pins you might like. And and it, it absolutely blows my mind that you would create a, what I, what I'm going to refer to as a product, these algorithms that would provide additional harmful content to someone with, you know, I think reasonable understanding of what the risks are of doing that. Yeah. So let's, let's break that down. And what does that actually look like? Um, (laughs) So 16,000 pieces of content on Instagram over six months is about 90 images or posts per day that she's reviewing. Now, if you've ever watched a teenager use Instagram, then that 90 posts in one day, that doesn't seem like that much because they 
they go through so much. But I think about my own experiences using Instagram and other social media that um, when you see one thing and then you continue to be exposed to that, then you start to think about that more. And often when you go back into um, into uh, the social media app, then it it may show you the things that you've already seen again. And so, you know, she may have seen those things multiple times. Um, and then just seeing 90 depressive images every day is is a pretty, that's a lot. I mean, that's a lot of exposure to images which are very powerful and more powerful even than text as they say a picture is worth a thousand words so those are things that we need to be thinking about as well that looking at images as opposed to uh reading content about that like just reading books about that or people's experiences is one thing but seeing images and you and i have probably seen the kinds of images that are that are on there that include images of self-harm and um dark disturbing images as well that's really challenging it's super challenging and as the coroner said you know it's reasonable to believe that when she was viewing this material if she's already depressed and you know is is in a vulnerable demographic you know, every kid to one degree or another is grappling with changes as they go through mm-hmm. their tweens and early teens, you know, and, and for some it's, it's very challenging. And the coroner correctly points out, I think that somebody who is dealing with those kinds of vulnerabilities is likely to be more affected by this kind of content uh, than others. And so it, it can create dangerous spiral now having you know talked to a number of different experts and and i have a couple of friends who work in the suicide prevention field they are absolutely adamant that no one factor explains a suicide that it it is a very complicated uh topic it it, it's not easily parsed and so you can't sit here and say well this happened because of pinterest and instagram it's not that simple. But the point seems to be pretty clear that there are ways in which the social media companies are contributing to outcomes like this. And that's part of what we need to sort out. And the, this is a very instructive example of a coroner taking the time five years to rule that her that her suicide was a result of depression and exposure to online content. And this is one of those things where once it is put in writing and once it is out there, like now it becomes a a precedent, a thing that we can go back to and say, you know, this happened here. This also happened over here as well. And and I think even though it's a long time to mm-hmm. wait, I think that it, it is worthwhile to start saying this contributes to somebody's suicidal ideation and eventual act as was the case with Molly. And I think that that's a really important step in my opinion, in the right direction to, to start documenting that, that it is contributing to harm to children. Absolutely. And I think this is a great 
spot in the show to give a shout out to uh, Molly's father, Ian Russell, who's become a powerful advocate for greater regulation uh, of mm-hmm. harmful content. And he, I think, really led the push to get the social media companies to produce the evidence and testify at the inquest about mm-hmm. how this material could have been fed to his daughter when it's so clearly the terms and conditions of these social media platforms. And as a matter of fact, you had a couple of people who testified who actually apologized that Mm -hmm. she had been able to view this content. Now, interestingly, and we'll get into some of the legal stuff further on, that's going to potential liability issues for them in the United Kingdom. Um, It doesn't raise them, ironically, in the United States because of our First Amendment and Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. But I've got some thoughts on on that as well that we can get to in a little bit. Yeah. One last thing that I want to say before we move on um, is uh, her her dad also said something. Um, uh, He said his daughter had reached out for help on Twitter to personalities with thousands or even millions of followers who would not even necessarily notice a tweet from someone like Molly. So it, this, this part of the story, I think brings up two things. Number one, um, it Molly needed to reach out to the right person and reaching out to a random person on Twitter is not the right person to reach out to for help. Right. So we need to help kids find the support they need that is appropriate and not thinking that they can reach out to some random person on Twitter or some famous person on Twitter has millions of followers. The second piece of that is that it cannot be incumbent on uh, personalities uh, with thousands or even millions of followers to be the one who responds and, and helps a a child who's struggling um, because that is, that's not a sustainable model for help for someone. And so there, there needs to be more publicity about how to get help in here. Um, <clears throat> in the United States, there is uh, the suicide prevention um, hotline that people can call. And that is something that I, I suggest everybody um, has uh, in their phone. You can call or text 988 in the United States and get help right away for free uh, with no uh, no no blockage. Uh, and then 988lifeline.org is the website that you can go to as well. And, you know, we need to help kids know where to go when they're experiencing this and reaching out to random people on the internet is, is not the thing to do. You've got to get oh, connected with someone who can help. That's really, really good advice, Jethro. And as a uh, standard reminder to folks who are listening to this, please go to the webpage for this show on cybertraps.com, where we have uh, a bunch of different show notes, including uh, contacts for the suicide prevention resources in the US, the UK and Ireland, Australia, and beyond. So um, certainly look at those, make sure that you pass them on to anyone that you think might find them useful.
Um, so let's get into the <clears throat> the legal ramifications here and some of these other uh, ideas that we can talk about. Yeah, no, believe me, we <laughs> this is really kind of in my sweet spot for the issues that I've been working on in terms of free speech and uh, the changes in society due to uh, tech, uh, to, due to the rise of technology, social media, mobile, et cetera, and so forth. And I think when we talk about the legal issues surrounding all of this, one of the reasons that the social media companies grapple with this is that they are both protected constitutionally and statutorily in the United States. And those protections flow out from the United States to their behavior in other countries. So specifically, in the United States, obviously, we have the First Amendment to the Constitution, which provides for freedom of speech and prevents um, you know, any regulation of the press. So whether or not you consider a tweet to be uh, speech or whether or not you consider Twitter to be uh, publishing it as a press, quote unquote, there's clear constitutional protection for what someone says on these social media platforms. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, the origins of social media can be traced to Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which is something I really dove into, uh, in particular in my first book, uh, Obscene Profits in Ties of the Online Adult Industry, because that uh, was really the, the head start on all of this. But the basic concept of Section 230 is that if there is an online service like America Online, going back ways, or mm -hmm. uh, you know, obviously uh, Facebook or Twitter, the, and they allow people to upload content, Section 230 exempts those companies from any legal liability for what people upload, which is just a huge protection. And a lot of people yeah. argue that what we see as the internet these days simply wouldn't exist because the scale of uploads is so gargantuan that there's really no practical way for these companies to completely prevent the uploading of harmful content. I mean, mm -hmm. we've seen it time and again. You remember that shooting that took place? Well, which one? But one of them, I think, down in Florida, where the um, the shooting was live streamed by the shooter. Yeah. And it still took like an hour, hour and a half, I think, for Facebook to get it off of its site. And by that time, of course, copies were floating all over the place. You know, yeah. so this is an illustration of the kinds of problems that arise. Now, people talk about Section 230 and they say, well, what if we you know, basically eliminated that? What that would basically force companies like Instagram and, and Meta and, and Pinterest and all the rest of them to do would be to prevent the uploading of anything until it had been vetted. And so obviously that would bring everything to a screeching halt. Yeah. And, you know, that we, we probably don't want that either, you know, and this is where like the, the answers to these problems are not easy to come to because we no. want to be able no, to post not. things. And, you know, the, 
there are um, there are regu- or there are policies that the, that the social media companies have where they do take down a lot of stuff and the the challenge is is that how do you know what thing is the right thing to take down and what thing is the wrong thing to take down and you know that that's where this becomes even more challenging because in this situation we can probably pretty easily convince people that self-harm images and videos and things like that should be taken down to protect our our youth and young kids and and so then it becomes well what else should be taken down and everything can't be all unicorns and butterflies right so we have to (laughs) we we don't know the right things to take down and how to do it and because many of these things are based on our own morals then it becomes even more challenging of what should be taken down and shouldn't be taken down. It that's that's absolutely true. And you know, even in the inquest, you had officials from Pinterest and Instagram saying, you know, this is complicated because some of the content in question was designed to be educational, was designed to mm-hmm. um, you know provide people with information, even though it's it's very disturbing in its actual content. And, you know, you can think of myriad examples in which that might be true. And so how how these websites moderate when there's nuances of information, that's not an easy question to answer because we do want there to be in an ideal world, a free flow of information. But the problem that we, I think are seeing, and this is where we start to, potentially get to a solution is that the the web these social media platforms are caught in a bind between their desire to use algorithms to promote content that they think their users will find interesting and their need to moderate content that could be potentially harmful and by the way this isn't really the show to discuss noting that these social media companies like Meta and less so Twitter, but you know Pinterest and so forth, have a huge mental health problem in terms of their moderators that they mm-hmm. hire, you know, they outsource their moderation to people who are spending hours every day looking at what Molly looked at and probably bad for them. <laughs> You know, so um, you begin to appreciate the scale and and insidiousness of this problem. So I think we can focus at the end of the day on algorithms as the crux of the problem. I think it's interesting that in in Russell's advocacy, but also because lots of parents are worried about this, that the UK is in the middle of drafting a pretty... And I'll be really fascinated to see what the final language of that bill is, which should probably be government stands, um, should be sometime uh, this fall. But what they're thinking of doing, and again, remember that does First Amendment, so they've got much greater regulatory authority than the U.S. government does. But what they're looking at doing is requiring tech companies to do a professional assessment of 
the potential harm that their platforms may cause, uh, particularly to children, and to put forward proposals that will mitigate those harms. So that's a really great start. And then yeah. when you look at penalties, one of the things that the UK is proposing is that there would be fines for violations of up to 18 million or 10% of a company's worldwide revenue. So if you just look at Meta, for instance, they had 118 billion in revenue last year. So an $11.8 billion penalty, I think, might get their attention. Yeah. Uh, changing fines to be percentage of income is, uh, that seems like a very <laughs> yeah. harsh and powerful way to get some change to happen. You know, it seems to me that if if you could, for example, um, take out algorithms that are specific for certain things, like in this situation here that Pinterest sent uh, other depression pens you may like, um, take out uh, the algorithms for those specific keywords, seems like it could be a good step in the right direction so that you know, the algorithms, the, the social media networks definitely use to keep people engaged in their platform. But if you could take away some of those algorithms so that they are not um, uh, recommending the stuff that is harmful, that could be a step in the right direction. Doesn't take away the content. It doesn't take away the, um, what's the word, the educational nature of some of that content, but it makes it um, a little more challenging for that to be in your face all the time, as as is often the case with um, yeah. with content like that. I, you know that's that's a great that's a great suggestion, Jethro. Because you know we, God, when you look at some of the stories that come out in this venue, so much of it is because the the websites literally are feeding harmful material which is obviously harmful not this is not this is not particularly complicated stuff if you're if you're feeding a teenage girl information on diet restriction to the point where they're developing bulimia you know it's it they, I, I i fail to understand what the social value of doing that is mm -hmm. and and to me you know at some point there need to be people of conscience in these social media platforms who are willing to take steps that may not necessarily be in the best interests of their business model, but are socially worthwhile. And, you know, when you've got a, excuse me, an executive from Instagram uh, basically admitting that he would not allow his children to look at the content that Molly Russell looked at, then there's a problem, you know, yeah. and yes, parents absolutely do have a responsibility. And I've long advocated that the, the first and most important sensors, if you will, are parents in terms of what their kids look at. But clearly, the, you know, social media companies and the people who work for them have a moral responsibility to pay more attention to this issue. Mm hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not, it's, it's not enough to, um, 
to to put in a couple policies and then be done with it like we need constant continued vigilance on it and nothing less than that is acceptable in my mind I agree with you. Well, you know, and I think that this underscores the point that you and I have made in a number of shows, which is that the longer a child's access to social media can be delayed, honestly, the better. Um, yes. It's just it, the the downside seems at this stage without better control of the algorithms, the downside seems um, much greater than the upside. I mean, they will they will absolutely catch up with their peers um, in terms of knowing how to use social media and so forth when they're old enough to really appreciate the risks of, of what's online. But, you know, the idea that you're going to have 13 and 14 year old kids on these social media platforms, particularly if they're not necessarily being supervised on a regular basis, uh, seems wildly risky. Yes, for sure. Um, I think the, the last thing that I'd like to say is uh, just a reminder to if you know someone who's struggling with depression or mental health issues or suicidal ideation, then to reach out to uh, to get help from professionals. And they're like Fred said earlier in the show notes, there are all kinds of places to go to get that. And um, and here in the United States, 988, put that in your phone, program it in so that you can help those who are struggling and uh, be ready to support them. And I think that's um, that's what we all need is people to help us and support us uh, because as much as me, we may want the social media companies to change things, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to, unfortunately. <laughs> well, God knows that is the truth, Jethro. And I, I think that, you know, this feels personally like a very important show because we're, you know, raising kids, a generation of kids who are so deeply immersed in all of this. And it's going to take careful observation and outreach from all of us uh, mm -hmm. to make sure that they navigate that safely. And, and again, if you can delay your child's onboarding to social media, really give that some serious thought. Um, might be worthwhile giving a shout out to uh, the paperback slash ebook raising cyber ethical kids. And of course you and I did a mini course based on that. Um, so we'll throw the link into the show notes for that, but it's got some good suggestions on how to navigate these issues and develop the level of conversation that can help mitigate potential problems. Absolutely. Good. Thanks for bringing this topic up, Fred. I appreciate it. Yeah, well, it's a tough one, and uh, we'll we'll have some slightly cheerier topics to look forward to. Yes. Um, definitely uh, want to give a shout out to next month's uh, talk about the cyber traps of Halloween costumes for educators. That's always a fun topic, and we'll be previewing uh, the upcoming trip to PPI uh, next week. So, yeah, excellent. Uh, turn gears. All right. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Cyber Traps podcast. In the coming weeks, we'll continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, digital psychology, I guess, <laughs> and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. 
You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all of your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have guest, question, or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have loved this show. Please leave us a five-star rating and share this with your friends. We appreciate having you with us and look forward to having you join us on our next episode. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master's schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.